adventures in DevOps. And today we're going to talk about logs and log streamings. And um, I don't really know a whole lot about that topic. So we're going to kick it right on over to the guest as we like to do. So with us today, we have Chris Cooney. Did I say your name right? Yes, ma'am. Perfect. All right. Great. Will Button and Jonathan Hall. Hi, I, I heard we we're talking about streaming. This is a lot, all about Twitch, right? Yes. Video games, Twitch, the new Zelda awesome. game. That's it. That's what we're That's doing. That's why I'm here. Me too. All right, Chris. So with that, that um, you know, completely uh, <laughs> derailed your topic for a moment there. What do you, why do you well, tell now, us now a little I'm... bit about yourself and whether or not you play video games and how that relates to streaming? Yeah. Okay. This is it's quite a challenge. Unfortunately, I'm now the guy that's not talking about gaming, which is the worst position to be in. But um, so I'm Chris. I've been a software engineer for uh, ten years now. Uh, I began. Uh, my career as a Java engineer, and then uh, which was fun, um, and then I moved into sort of front-end engineering, React, Angular, that kind of thing, and then eventually ended up maybe four or five years ago uh, getting into the sort of SRE and DevOps space. Um, primarily worked on serverless architectures and uh, Kubernetes, very heavily on the Kubernetes space, uh, building internal platforms, uh, and I ended up becoming the platform engineer for a other principal engineer for platform engineering in, in a retail company here in the UK called uh, Sainsbury's. Um, so it was a big company, 2,000 engineers plus a bunch of maybe a thousand contractors, um, billions of about a billion pounds, 1.3 billion dollars uh, annual uh, online business. So a lot of traffic, a lot of stuff, and, uh, and a high uh, regulatory requirement as well. So that was all the sort of work I was doing at Sainsbury's. Now um, I am out of the retail space, which is nice. And I am working with CoreLogix. CoreLogix is a full stack observability provider. Uh, so we process logs, metrics, traces, security data. Um, and we render that in new, fun, and interesting ways. Uh, and we hope to, the big things that we're focused on challenging is um, breaking data silos. So people typically look at their logs, all their metrics, all their traces, all their security data. And what we do really, really well is we blend the, the experience together. So you can jump from your logs, to your metrics, to your traces, and you can kind of move between them really uh, fluidly and helping customers deal with scale. Um, so helping them uh, challenge the, the uh, sort of approach the challenge of um, you have a vast, vast amount of data. Holding on to all of it is ex extremely expensive. Um, how do you archive it? How do you store it, compress it, do whatever you need to do with it? Um, and moreover, how do you do that in a way that's completely accessible um, using the lowest cost storage, but maintaining very highly performant uh, and uh, you know, effective queries and maintain data discoverability. So it's a big sort of space that we're in. Um, and yeah, and the, the reason for the topic today is that one of our big differentiators were built on uh, a streaming based architecture. So using Kafka, Kafka streams. Um, unfortunately, the Twitch streaming kind. So sorry to disappoint anyone who's excited. Um, and as an ancillary topic, yes, I do play games. Uh, uh, hence the chair for anyone who's watching the inevitable video. Um, I believe that the, 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 the gamer's chair is like a, a signature that someone spends too much time in front of a computer getting angry over certain scores that don't really mean anything, uh, which is a somewhat pessimistic way of describing gaming. So I think it might be useful to define what streaming means in this context. Because yeah. um, I mean, we're talking about logs, right? What what other way of logging is there than streaming it? So yeah. <laughs> help me understand what we're talking about. 
So there's um, it's 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 logs, metrics, traces, and security data. It's the full sort of gamut of uh, observability and telemetry data that one might expect. Um, so the typical approach that people uh, most companies take is they take you send your data to them in some way, so via an API call, via some sort of queue that's sent Kinesis or whatever, um, and then you uh, they they take it, they store it in a giant data store. They will index it. They will try and rationalize it, normalize it, make some sense of it. And then they will trigger downstream alarms. They will trigger, uh, they will update metrics. They will update dashboards. Um, they will train machine learning models. They will do all these things. But ostensibly, it's ingest, store, index, and then process. This is a pretty normal data processing model. The problem with this model uh, is twofold. Um, one, maintaining this giant store at the start is really difficult. It actually means, just from a pure economics point, the cost to ingest a given byte of data is higher if you go with this model, because you've got all of the additional processing that's associated with indexing and querying those indexes and rationalization and normalization. And this is if then the customer might decide, actually, I just want to drop this data. You know, it's really, really common for this. And actually, block is often a delete process. It's not actually a don't store this in the first place. It's actually a delete process because the companies are simply architected to store upfront. So the way streaming uh, differentiates from that is that uh, in the example of CoreLogix is you, you take, you ingest data into CoreLogix, immediately it goes onto a stateful Kafka stream that has persistent backups. This enables a few things. Um, one, uh, really, really early and very fast decision-making. So if you don't want data, it will never be stored. It will never be held in the database. It will never be indexed. No metadata will be held about it. It will just disappear into the ether. The second thing is that it enables... Um, you to make decisions about where you'd like that data to be stored. So what a lot of um, uh, archiving, if you'd like as an example, uh, what a lot of archiving solutions do is you take your data, it goes into high tier storage or something. And then after a certain amount of time, you can send that off to the archive. Um, whereas actually what we found is that if data is useless or if data is very verbose and you never query it, holding it for two weeks isn't going to change that fact before it goes into an archive. Um, and so what we allow, what, what streaming observability allows you to do with that early decision-making is it's been ingested by CoreLogix, route it directly to your archive. Um, and the thing that uh, CoreLogix can do differently is we can query the archive directly and the archive is actually held in S3 in the customer's account. Um, and so you can query the archive directly um, and without having to re-index or decompress or anything like that. Um, and so these are all things that are enabled by a sort of stream processing based architecture. Um, and th th there's a, there's a, series of non-functional things as well that aren't necessarily for the customer. So for example, if you do a store first kind of approach, if your storage dies, you're in trouble. You're, you're in some serious trouble. You lose pretty much all your features straight away. And if storage storage layers can be temperamental, they're also the scariest part to change in almost any architecture is the stateful parts. Because if they get corrupted, if the memory uh, goes wrong, or if the, the actual drives die or something, you're in serious trouble. Um, whereas, uh, so so if, if your storage dies, you're, it kind of goes. Uh, with a streaming-based architecture, all of that processing happens up front. Storage kind of happens at the end. So your alarms will still fire. Your machine learning models will still uh, train. Your um, your dashboards will still update. Your metrics will still be generated. And then if, if the storage layer is, does have a problem, it might not be stored at the end, but all of the key features along the way are still functional. So it's much more resilient, much less reliant on centralized storage. That kills that single point of failure that might exist in a sort of storage-first architecture. This is a few of the, the reasons. Uh, so it's more cost optimal, it's more resilient, uh, it's faster. Alarms fire faster in streaming-based architectures than they do in um, storage-first architectures. Um, so yeah, this is just some of the reasons. I obviously, um, 
talking about the internal goings on in the technology and Coralogics might be um might be nda breaching grounds uh, but i i suspect that um i can talk about a little bit about my engineering background um we've built so so we internally it's actually what led me to an observability company in the first place as an engineer was we built a um a kafka cluster uh, to process a great deal of sort of stream log data it was mostly logs uh, that we were trying to process and um because it was just such a volume of them coming from all these different teams and products it was crazy um and what we found was as soon as we introduced this cluster and we uh, the, the, the kafka cluster and we added stateful backups onto the topics um all of these missing logs were no longer missing anymore like that, that just stopped happening and um, we, we did, there was never an intention. The intention was just, we, we just accepted a certain amount of logs were going to be missing. And that was just, just life. Um, and that just stopped happening. Every single log was in place. It was never an intention. So we were trying to work out like what, what's going on there. Blah, blah. And it's obviously the, the obvious answer now on reflection, it was really straightforward. Kafka has good mechanisms for making sure the message has been delivered where they should be, should be delivered. Um, and having that buffer in the way uh, and not relying on a central storage to constantly say like, keep up with what's coming on, make it more of a pull mechanism, um, was much more resilient, much more uh, consistent data. Um, but also um, the volume we could push through was far, far higher with a far higher quality of service that we could offer. Because we were part of the platform team, we were essentially servicing uh, 2000 engineers. Um, we could we could say to them with absolute confidence, yeah, do your worst, like set every application to trace level, it's fine, do, do what you want. Like we, we, the level of confidence we had in the system went way, way higher. Um, and it meant, it also meant interestingly that, um, doing things like short patching of elastic search nodes uh, or now open search nodes, um, would have, uh, was far, far easier because it was like, well, we'll, we'll the, the, the nodes will go down, the queues will fill up for maybe a minute, a minute and a half. Then as everything recycles, they'll just start consuming from the queue again. And it wasn't massive message going out on Slack saying, Hey, everyone, you're going to experience massive errors. And then, um, and then like having to deal with that sort of fallout. So it was just an example there where it, it was literally just better. Like it was just far, far better experience for the customers, better experience for us, fewer wake-ups in the night, fewer scary um, deployments and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it was awesome. I want to say I like the response when like, there's no data lost and things are working. What's wrong here? Like yeah. there must be some, that's, a, that's like a very typical engineering response. This couldn't have worked correctly yeah. the first time. Exactly. Like, no way. <laughs> What's really happening true. here? Yeah, it was it was a confusion of um, it was the general confusion of like it was too good. It was like it was one of them where well, we need to deal with the the sheer number of like errors and, and how slow and the index mapping indexing problems and all sorts of different issues that were occurring in open search. It was like we need to fix that. Oh, we've also fixed this thing of really inconsistent missing logs. It was like wait, what? How's that happened? And no one trusted it because we couldn't track the root cause. Once we did, of course, it was fine. And like, I think because we were so skeptical at the start, it wasn't just like, oh yeah, if you put a, if you put a scalable sort of cloud, like a scalable queuing or streaming mechanism before your, uh, your, your data storage, it makes your data storage a bit more resilient. So, okay, well, that's relatively well understood computer science but we just didn't trust it at the time uh, but yeah it, it, was, it was a nice example of the before and after and experiencing that directly and obviously when i did the Corologics interview and they were like hey so we do the streaming observability thing i was like i know all about that wow i didn't know that it was great to see a product actually form out of that um, and it's a big product as well it's doing really well so that's great that does sound much more reliable than my typical like um cat log file grep this thing went <laughs> yeah. wrong yeah so that yeah. sounds much better are there was, certain types of industries that you tend to work with? So 
we we tend to we tend to do best i think with um sort of medium-sized companies they're approaching the problem of they have too much data um, and they need some a sort of scalable partnership um and potentially the ones that have been burned by some of the less attractive aspects of the existing SaaS providers so um one example of this is um we offer a 15 second um sort of support response time so if a customer uh, issues or asks us a question we, we will respond our median time is 15 seconds um we sign slas for two minutes just to be safe but two minutes is still everybody else is like half a day a day um we have a customer support team that will respond we have a median resolution time of about 57 minutes i think this week um so it's like we we tend to respond much faster that we tend to resolve much faster than people respond um and when you couple those two things together you've got these these mid-sized companies that are scaling rapidly they're trying to find their own way they're trying to learn how they're going to go about um growing their infrastructure growing their product um having that kind of support is just really really awesome if excuse that my cat just knocked over a card um the uh yeah i'm trying this arm here is currently like cat defense um so um just um sorry anyway uh, so um yeah so the um the most important thing is, is 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 recognizing that a lot of the customers have experienced two really unpleasant things. One is really bad support, and actually, especially with the SaaS observability solution, the support is terrible. Um, I can't name names without I get sued, but there are some big big vendors out there that will leave tickets for weeks, you know. And it's this Byzantine system of like you have to have this specific kind of issue in order for a human being to look at it. Otherwise, you have to traverse some crazy AI AI bot that the intern made last summer that was supposed to save a bunch of money or something. Um, it's nuts. So um so this is like one 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 big issue and the other one is overages um the, the the sort of prevalence of overages among SaaS observability and it's like their business model at points it's like well oh yeah well, they gave us this great rate but every single year we get hit with an overage that's five times our base bill billable and it's like well that's crazy that's not really any way to do business so we don't charge overages um and what we found is that the predictability and the consistency and the transparency of the pricing model plus the excellent support plus the performance works really really well for those medium-sized companies that are trying to scale and trying to scale fast and need partnerships rather than just you know you one customer out of a million um and it's the same thing the big companies now are starting to notice this as well i think which is really interesting these massive massive companies are starting to become quite interested in some of our solutions as well so we'll see where that one goes but, yeah cool i guess the more you guys grow just don't bank with svb i guess oh gosh um, no no that was no. That was terrifying. We, we luckily it was zero exposure for us, but um, but it was um, yeah, it was. I saw that. And I was like, because I don't really. Obviously, I'm from the UK, and I knew I knew about the existence of SVB, but I didn't know just how like far-reaching the consequences of that would be. And then I started hearing that the prime minister here is, um, so the prime minister here is like is currently in talk was in talks over the weekend with Joe Biden, and I think the um. I can't remember who else was the third person. They were just trying to like make sure that there was people were buying off the different arms of SVB to make sure there wasn't this massive bank run that occurred. It was crazy. I didn't really, I didn't, I never realized it was that it was going to be that big a thing. Um, but yeah, since I was, what was that like for you guys? Obviously, over over in the states, was it was it a bit, was it like a national news kind of thing? Or yeah, I was trying to convince my husband that I should be a stay at home like kid cat mom. He was okay. not. He was not going. He was not going for that plan. I was like, okay. "Yeah, you know, That's... might be out of business, might not be. We don't know. <laughs> I guess we'll find out Monday." 
what kind of pushback do you ever get when you when you start talking about streaming? Do you do you get naysayers or or people who don't believe that it's the right solution? What what kind of things do you hear there? I'll, I'll be honest. I think that stream processing is still. I know Kafka is is becoming more and more normalized in the industry, and more and more people are using it. But I actually think that most people don't really know what the difference of a streaming architecture versus a sort of stateful or a batch architecture might be. Um, and so most of the time, actually, what we find it's an educational challenge. It's like a they're like, great, you're streaming. What the hell does that mean to us? You know, um, and so and and that that's actually I think would be the biggest um, thing that we come up against. And then um, uh, and so to the point now where we were in internal sessions with with people who aren't necessarily technical in the company, so that everybody in the company knows like really well and really clearly what what the difference is, what the pros and cons are, um, and uh, why a streaming component in an architecture is generally a good idea from both a resilience sort of perspective but also from a cost optimization perspective as well um and so yeah i would say that's the biggest thing it's the education piece i think when streaming architectures become more and more and more normal um that'll problem excuse me that problem will solve itself um but who knows how long that's going to take so so you said pros and cons what are, what are some of the cons are there times when it doesn't make sense to do streaming so speaking from a sort of in the past, I would say um, introducing a sort of streaming component assumes that you're comfortable with eventual consistency. Uh, you know, you've got like a series of events piled up and you have to just chew through them at the speed that you can. Um, and sometimes there are systems where, um, and also that you can assume the precedence of the data that you've got. So like first come, first served is a reasonable model. Um, that might not be the case, uh, for example, if you've got the price of something constantly changing. You don't want to queue those things because it's the latest price that is the most relevant. You don't want to process any of the previous prices. Yeah. Um, and so um, you, you can you can get around that with different solutions, but um, a basic queuing model in that case wouldn't really work for you. Um, yeah. So I think I think it's possible to build any any architecture efficiently using using a streaming model. It's just about there are there are certain nuances that are that, that, that appear that you have to kind of be very aware of depending on your industry, depending on your engineering challenge, depending on what you're trying to achieve. Um, yeah. Luckily for like logs and metrics and things, um, most of the time it's about the story of what happened. You know, it's not just about like what is the latest current CPU of this box. It's what's the, what's been the trend in CPU over the past hour? Where's that spike come from? Those are the, those are the more common questions that one tends to ask. And therefore, uh -huh. Yeah, eventual consistency models work really well for that. We actually do have some rapid update functionality in the architecture as well, uh, but that, those are like additions to the, 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 they're some of those nuances I talked about essentially. Um, That's really interesting. So I remember earlier you were saying, oh, it's not just like logs, but it's observability and metrics. And I don't, um, I don't think that like quite got into my head until you were starting to talk about CPU. And yeah. then my brain went like, but that's not, how, how would you get that from a log? So yeah, it, it yeah. is. Um, it's, it's, that is yeah, a it's nice whole, intersection. Yeah, it's the whole whack. It's logs, metrics, uh, tracing, and security. Um, we we started life in 2017 as a company, and we were primarily log analytics. Um, and our big sell back then was um, that we could use uh, machine learning to um, process um, process logs. We could cluster them together. We could find trends and, and and variances across different values. So, for example, we could look at the normal flow. Of a certain log from a certain application, and, and alert you when you when you deviate from that normal flow, um, and th those were some of the earliest sort of differentiators. Now it's a much more sort of full 
larger uh, platform that's all kind of cases around the, or the, the, as they say, the three pillars of observability, logs, metrics, and traces, um, and then security as well. We have a security offering for SIEM, CSPM, and then we have a sort of um, managed services thing on the security side as well. Uh, you can, they will do like vulnerability scanning for you and things like that. Um, yeah, and this is what I mean. I think I think one of the things that people do is they, um, with the metric side of things, so if you think about a typical metric solution is like Prometheus, maybe you're sophisticated and you've horizontally scaled Prometheus using Thanos and you've got that deployed across multiple clusters or something like that. Um, and immediately, almost immediately with Prometheus, you run into the problem of like this, all of these nodes are running out of memory, like straight away, like before you do anything, all of the nodes have run out of memory. And then, um, and so, and this is why I quite like A, streaming architectures and B, how we leverage uh, S3. So we actually have a, a system for storing metrics in S3 um, and querying them absolutely blazing fast. It's really, really quick. Um, uh, but because it's S3, it's much, much, much cheaper than holding things in RAM or holding things in, you know, uh, stalled threads. I saw the other day people using CPU for storage. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. It was like the, the worst of all worlds. It was more volatile and more expensive. Um, but there's just someone doing stuff because they can. Um, but yeah, so it's much cheaper than RAM, far cheaper than SSD storage, far cheaper, even cheaper than most magnetic storage. S3 is by far the cheapest way of doing it. Problem is the the uh, the, the throttling and the, the query limits. And we've kind of worked out a quite clever system for getting around that. And um, so we can lift, I think one of our query things, about 10 terabytes of data from S3 in about 10 seconds. Um, uh, which is pretty awesome. Um, and that's actually archived data in CoreLogix. Uh, so um, it's super fast, super powerful. I'm I'm really curious. Can, can you talk about how you query S3 so quickly, or or is that a trade secret? Uh, no. So so I can talk a little bit about the. Um, so we 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 contribute heavily to a project called Apache Arrow, um, which is all about columnar uh, data formats. I, I know that uh, one. Yeah, sure that, yeah. Yeah. So um, we contribute to that. We use the Data Fusion query engine, um, and um, it's it comes down to using a clever format. So uh, we use uh, a, a slight variant of Parquet called CX data, Corologic data. Um, so those things optimize performance, those things make things quicker. Um, and then uh, it's a great deal of parallelization, essentially, a great deal of um, using utilizing serverless infrastructure, issuing a lot of parallel requests to S3. Because the one thing S3 is, it's very, very consistent at high parallel scale. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't allow these massive one-off queries, or it doesn't perform particularly well on those. It usually batches them, and you end up having to do lots and lots of them in chain. Um, so we, we we utilize a great deal of parallelism to pull up a huge amount of data. And then we have a, um, a custom language called Data Prime. Data Prime is a data analytics language. And the, the real sort of beauty of it is that it allows, um, uh, you can do like data discovery. So you can kind of process and change, you can aggregate data in stream. Um, so for example, um, you can pull out data and say, tell me the three availability zones, the top three availability zones, uh, that have the most logs coming from them to give you an idea of activity coming from your different availability zones for balancing. Um, you can do that on the fly and it will aggregate the data on the fly for you. Um, all of that is enabled by essentially just a huge amount of parallelism um, uh, coupled with a great deal of cost optimization built into things like uh, AWS Lambda and Fargate and things like that. So we kind of just pay for usage and nothing more. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's, that's a fair summary. Without, yeah, that's yeah. really cool. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought of, of all that. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty sweet. I, I recently had the privilege of interviewing Matthew Topol uh, from Voltron Data, who works on Apache Arrow on cool. a different podcast. 
And it was, oh, wow. I mean, I, I, I didn't know about the project until then. And it was quite fascinating to, to hear yeah. how that works. And so, yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. Like it's not, it certainly wouldn't be my area of expertise, uh, but we have some engineers in the company who they talk to me about this stuff and I'm like, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Like, great. Sounds fantastic. Like, yeah. And I say that as a 10 year engineer, I, I like, I have a clue about like 35% of what they're saying uh, <laughs> and then they just lose me. They start talking about like, I was never good at data structures and algorithms. It's never been my, like, right. never been my, 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 my topic, but um, yeah. those guys are they're hot on it. They're really, really good at it. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's a great deal of computer science going on at CoreLogix actually, yeah. um, which it, has been a nice, but somewhat haunting refresher of my, my degree. If anybody's interested in listening to that uh, episode, by the way, it's uh, the Cup of Go podcast, uh, the episode from February 13. If anybody wants to hear that interview with Matthew Topol, just for the listeners who might be interested. I wanted to ask, what's um, what's the onboarding process? Like to, if, I, if I have a an existing logging solution from some unnamed other party, what's the transition look yeah. like to switch over to CoreLogix? Yeah, so it obviously it depends on the tooling you've decided to utilize in the first place. Um, but there are a few key things about our customer service. One, we offer free onboarding. So um, if you um, have an account, you can you can go straight to customer support and say, hey, I need help uh, integrating with CoreLogix. In 15 seconds, you get a response. Usually, uh, very, very shortly after that, you'll get um, an engineer. And the engineer will sit with you and work with you to, to sort of install software in your cluster and, and deploy things as needed. If you have installed anything like FluentD, FluentBit, um, OpenTelemetry, um, you know, FileBeat, any of the really normal open source uh, solutions, Prometheus, um, OpenSearch, then it's just a matter of shifting a bit of config and you will natively integrate with all of those things. Um, we natively integrate with like the, the, all the cloud provider metrics. It's like, it's like CloudWatch and AWS, for example. Um, we have like Firehose integrations, direct integrations with CloudWatch, uh, Lambda, we have like a Lambda layer, which will automatically export your CloudWatch metric, all sorts of different stuff. So um, obviously it depends on your tech stack in terms of the actual technology you'll employ, uh, but you'll do all of it with uh, with an engineer who spends all of their time helping people integrate. And so you'll, you'll do it with an expert, basically. Uh, and that's one of the things that we, A, I personally am quite proud of talking about because I've seen this functionality develop in the company um, and how they've trained the people, how they train the engineers on the, on the job. Um, and and seeing the impact that it's made to, to customers on board into the platform is awesome. So the onboarding journey is super smooth because you're not really doing it on your own. Um, there are, as we say, sort of people that just sign up, start a plan, do their own thing, and they're quite happy. We have a bunch of documentation. There's a great deal of me speaking uh, because I make all these videos uh, that are embedded in the documentation. So I imagine somewhere out there, there are a series of people who are sick of the sound of my voice. Uh, but uh, we'll... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but maybe maybe you guys by the end of this podcast we'll see. Um, but the um, the yes, yeah, so it's embedded in the documentation, um, and also um, the 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 platform itself has all these nice little tool tips. You know, you, you hover over something and it'll tell you all about it. We have cheat sheets buried everywhere for people to use. Um, so yeah, and we have native integrations to like two hundred different tools. So um, the chances are, if you use it, we integrate with it. Um, so it's it's pretty 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 smooth at this point. Um, from both a support and an engineering perspective. Yeah, I do have to say as a as a CoreLogix user, like the in-app tooltips and and helps help menus and links to documentation is actually really really well done, which is hard to do in an application of that scale and there's numerous examples of seeing yeah. it done incorrectly, but 
inside of CoreLogix, it's pretty intuitive to get where you need to be and get help for the things that you may not understand once you get there. That's awesome. I'll, I'll definitely make sure the feedback gets back to the engineers and the, the product guys. Uh, they um, are great. They, they actually agonize over that stuff a lot. So every time there's a new feature discussed, the big conversation is you know, how cohesive is this with the other features, with this confused people? And then, 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 then obviously, this is, there's an old phrase. What is it? There's only two hard problems in computer science, like cache and validation and naming things. Um, and we, we the, the naming things is we really agonize over it. Like there's, there's, there's two, 300 message Slack threads. Like, no, no, that word doesn't make any sense. And it goes on and on and on. We really do spend sweating the details on that because it, you know, it makes a material difference to the, the experience that the customers have. Um, so yeah, it's awesome to hear that. Thank you very much. Will. Naming things is terrible. I agree. It's a real source of stress. I don't like it. Um, because so there's always somebody with a better vocabulary than you as well. Who's like, did you think to use this word? And I'm like, no, I didn't think to use this word. <laughs> Great. Like, you walk uh, the source as you No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or when they, when engineers typically use, like, they'll use very, very niche words that are technically correct but you you need to like you need to use a dictionary it's like c plus plus programming and then a dictionary on top of it just to make sure that you can keep up with whatever i i learned a word um munging was the very first word uh, my very first role uh in, in in software engineering and i was like what is what does what does munging mean what, what is this a verb and then uh, it turns out it's like merging two things together um and it's it's sometimes using data and i never knew this that's the a the worst sounding word i've ever heard i've never heard that word used ever like not joining or merging or anything that everyone knows about munging for some reason um but when you actually look at the definition it's precisely what it was doing like exactly what it was doing so you can't argue with the correctness uh but yeah the the usability of the word so somewhat lacked i've always felt like munging was this word that saying the word kind of describes exactly what it's doing once you know that yeah yeah, I, all, all of this I agree with, uh, and that didn't stop me from spending like two weeks as a as a brand new software engineer frantically trying to work out: is it this kind? What is munging? Mean? What is munging? And not wanting to ask anyone because I just assumed everybody else knew. <laughs> what, what's the algorithm for munging? I don't want to get it wrong. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, or as the new guy, you're like, these guys are screwing with me. They just made that word up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Reminds me when I was a. My mind. When I was a waiter, we would tell new new hires to go to the basement and find a can of steam. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, when there, there was no basement, and what's a can of steam? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> we used, we used to tell. Um, uh, so this was back when I was I was I was a bartender a long long time ago, maybe maybe eleven twelve years ago now, and um, yeah, if we ever got new people in, it would always just be like, um, what was the one? It was like, can you go get the non alcoholic vodka from the back? And they'd, they'd go into the back and they'd be there for ages just hunting yeah, around yeah, for yeah. non-alcoholic vodka. Uh, and then they'd come out to the front and be like, well, I can't find any. And it'd be like, you spent 45 minutes. <laughs> what, what were you doing? And they'd been through everything. Like, the customer already left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. So what kind of tips can you give to us that, um, like streaming logging and or just logging in general, like that's the back end of it. What kind of tips can you give us to make it to make your logging better or more useful like what kind of application side things can or should you be doing yeah so look if um if let's say let's say you go with like a build your own kind of diy pretty pretty typical stack so 
open search for logs and Prometheus for metrics and stuff. I think there are some pitfalls that everybody does. And I, I consider, I said, I said one before, which is um, the typical model is hold the data in Elasticsearch, for example, for two weeks and then archive it. And um, the, like I said before, the problem with that is it makes the assumption that if you just hold on to data for long enough, at some point it'll become useful. Um, and so that model, I think, is an anti-pattern. If, if it's useless at day one, the chances are that it's not going to be useful at day 14. And so you just, you've just spent two weeks worth of money, essentially. And it's not, it's not a huge amount per log, but it adds up really, really quick. Um, and when you add on to that the overheads of maintaining a large cluster and um, operating these sort of extremely complex open search clusters is, is, a, is a skill into itself. Um, that would be the first thing. So, so as a general heuristic, it's keep as much data as possible out of your open search cluster. Like don't, don't think that everything needs to go in there. Try and, try and use your high-performance storage for your things that you really, really need. So error-level logs um, uh, and things of that nature, really, really important stuff. And try and find another low-cost place that you can hold stuff. So one example that people have used in the past that we've seen is storage nest three indexing it up into, into a parquet format, index it using like AWS Athena, for example, and query it that way. AWS Athena, the queries will take maybe 30 seconds, 40 seconds, sometimes a lot longer if you've got a lot of data in there. Um, and that's where it gets really this, the limits of this theory. But try and find ways of cost optimizing early and build that into your architecture, because otherwise you're going to rapidly run into some problems, especially around performance, but later on down the line around cost. Um, and then in terms of, um, for, for, for a sort of, we'll go up the stack a bit. So um, in terms of your infrastructure, try and find uh, the lowest touch maintenance tools that you can because maintaining them is just going to be a freaking nightmare and be ready to trade off on some features for that. Uh, in my experience, especially on the collection side, you don't need super, super, super fancy, can do all, all singing or dancing sort of agents and things like that. Nine times out of 10, you're going to use the most basic features in them and, and hopefully never, never think about it again except the odd patch that you've got to do, you know, when there's like a log for shell update or something that you've got to panic about. Um, and so um, I'd, I'd strongly recommend uh, open source collectors, even if you're using a SaaS vendor, open source collectors, definitely, definitely. Um, it, it gives you more purchasing power. You know, if, if you don't like the vendor you're with, your code isn't absolutely littered with their code. So you can go and change. You can just switch config and move to somebody else. Um, but also because they're usually better. They're more well-maintained, longer-lived, battle-tested. There's no weird memory leaks. They perform more reliably. Um, and then if we go up the level again um, to the code level, I would say um, try and include as much metadata as possible into the log documents themselves. So don't just have a log that's like, hello. Obviously, log in like a JSON format. You know, Make sure it's a machine-readable format. It's nice and easily indexable. And then include lots of metadata fields in that log. So um, what that does is it means that your data can be sliced from lots and lots of different ways. It improves the cardinality of your data. Um, and what this in turn does is it means that your data can be analyzed in lots and lots of different ways. Uh, and it's, it's actually the thing that tools like open source, open search are really, really good at um, is dealing with high cardinality data. Um, so, um, so those would be sort of three of the stack sort of tips that I would say. There's obviously a whole dark art to sort of getting this stuff right. Um, but really be aware of the, the three major sources of cost is storage holding on to all this stuff compute keeping your queries fast and the third one is the the operational and overhead of just of just keeping this thing alive once you, once it's big enough um, those are the three places where the cost is really going to get you um 
if you go with your own build, build your own solution. With the SaaS, SaaS world, um, I would say it's all about the overages that you want to avoid to be really, really aware of what data you're sending and making sure that your deal is reflective of the actual usage of your data. That's something we see a lot with people um, is it, who've come over to us from other other uh, other companies. They say, well, our base amount was, let's say it was $100,000 a year. And we kept getting overages of $300,000 a year. It'd be like, well, what was your base deal? And then you look at their base deal and it's like, well, your base deal was a quarter of what you actually sort of use. So, you know, this was always going to happen. This was always like, this was this, your, your true cost was always going to be $400,000 a year. It's just that for some reason you've decided it's been divided into a base cost and an overage. Um, and so we find that, this, that, that that's the kind of stuff, especially with SaaS providers, that you need to be aware of. Make sure your bill is really, really good. Make sure their support is good as well, because there's nothing worse than leaving a ticket for a week and a half and wondering whether anyone's listening to on the other side, especially when you're paying a lot of money. Um, yeah, those are just some of the uh, things. Cool. I'm wondering, um, like, what kind of machine learning models are you guys using? What is their purpose? I, I know you said something like whether or not a log is important. Is yeah. there anything else? Um, so there's a bunch of stuff we do. We do um, anomaly detection. So we uh, we have a machine learning models that are detecting uh, flow anomalies. Uh, so um, it will, if for example, uh, at 3 p.m. on a Tuesday, um, you typically are receiving, I don't know, 100 error logs. Um, the machine that the CoreLogix platform will learn that that is your normal profile, and you can set an alarm, which is essentially like if I get more than usual at any time. Um, over over a certain amount, so I get a thousand more logs than I normally expect. Um, tell me about it, and so that's one of the machine learning aspects that we have. What that enables us to do is um, it answers the, comp- the uh, quite complicated question of uh, dynamic alerting. So static alerting would be tell me when I have more than a thousand errors, or tell me when I have more than four percent errors. But maybe for your platform on a Friday at four p.m., four percent error rate is actually okay because you have so much traffic because it's Friday at four p.m. that uh, 4% is tolerable you know, for some reason. Um, and so what we say is you can set a more than usual alarm. Um, and you say, actually, what I've got, what I've had this week, that's good. Let's, let's roll with that. Um, and then next week you get 8%, you'll be told about it. And so that's one of the ways that we use, utilize machine learning, super powerful. What we, what we often recommend is that that is kind of like your catch all safety net at the bottom of all of your alarms. That's the thing that's going to catch the weird stuff you didn't consider, the unknown unknowns, as people often say. And then you can define more traditional alarms around more um, more static thresholds higher up, where you can say, well, if this exceeds this or this exceeds this or whatever. And that way you have a lot of known problems that you can cover with alarms and then this nice sort of safety net underneath all of it uh, using machine learning. And the second thing, uh, there's a bunch of different examples just two that immediately come to mind. The second one is um, clustering the logs together. So you've got... You run a, okay, how many errors have I had in the past hour? 250,000. It's like, great. What do I do with that? Like, uh, how do I how do I dissect 250,000 alarms? One of the things that we found, uh, we run like sort of meta-analysis of how customers are using the platform. And uh, one of the things that we found is that 95% of all errors in a customer's data set are caused by the same five problems. So 95% of all alarms, error alarms, error logs, everything are all from the same five root causes. So um, we use something uh, tool called Logregation, or it's a feature called Logregation, um, where you can, it will cluster your similar logs together. So if you have 200,000 error logs that look almost identical with some minor variations, it will group all them together and you can click in and see, well, this is the normal flow of this type of error log and this is what you're currently seeing superimposed on top. 
And likewise, you can click on each individual field and you can see, well, for this field in a log, for this key in a log, for example, you know, kubernetes.host, here is, here is the number for this host, here is the number for this host, here's the number of logs that came out of this host and so on. Um, and the power of that is that rather than scrolling through and being like, okay, I think that 2,000 of them came from this host, so maybe that's a place to investigate, you just jump, you just skip all of that. How do you construct that query stuff? And you get straight into the, okay, it's 2,000 from this host, sweet. This, this is our starting point, that's a, that's a problem. This host is broken. Um, so yeah, it's, those are two ways that we utilize machine learning. Um, like I say, that was our original, that was the original thing that made us uh, differentiated us back in 2017. Uh, well before my time at the company. Um, I think it was like a three-person company back then. Um, now it's 250, so um, scaling quick. So is it safe to say that you munge those logs together? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> nice use of the word munge, by the way, Well, I like it. It's good. If nothing else, I'm, uh, I'm good for comic relief on the podcast. <laughs> this is really cool. I don't, I don't really think I have any other questions, though. Is there anything else that you wanted to add or is there anything that you didn't get to talk about? Um, no, all good. Um, happy to some, some great questions there. So thank you very much. Um, but yeah, all good otherwise. Shall we go to picks? I think we should do some picks. All right. So my pick this week, I'll just jump right in. Um, David Goggins, if you aren't familiar with him, he is a Navy SEAL, ultramarathoner, um, just has a pretty incredible backstory. He released a new book about a month ago called Never Finished that kind of picks up where his first book left off. And it talks about uh, continuing his ultramarathon career and his quest to become a smoke jumper, um, which a smoke jumper is someone, uh, a wildland wilderness firefighter that jumps out of the plane into the backwoods and, and fights the fire from within and works their way out. And so it's his quest to become that. It's a, it's a really cool book, very inspirational and motivational for me anyway. So if you like, uh, like that kind of stuff, Never Finished by David Goggins is a great book. And I, I read the book, but I've also heard that the audio book is really, really well done because he's actually in the recording booth with the narrator and then adds a lot of colorful context that's not in the printed copy of the book. When you said it was called Never Finish, I thought you were talking about my personal life and how I never get anything done. <laughs> right. It's like, wait, David Goggins is a scrum master now? <laughs> 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 that guy can do it all, man. Well, I can... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can if go next. If he was next. the scrum master for the team, I would, uh, that would be terrifying. Absolutely right. terrifying. <laughs> It'd be great. I'd get more work done than ever, but I would, I would, yeah, the stress would be intense. Yeah. You'd be closing tickets just out of sheer fear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God. All right. So my pick for this week, actually, I have two related picks. The first is a book I'm close to done audio reading. Uh, it's called A World Undone, The Story of the Great World War, 1914 to 1918. So it's kind of an all-encompassing history of World War One, And the, the author starts out by explaining that you know, there's been a lot of books and movies and other stories about World War One, but they're usually very narrowly focused on a particular battle or a particular person or a country. So this book tries to sort of be all-encompassing, explaining what led up to the war for the, you know, from the, the, the assassination uh, until the war actually started a couple months later. 
And so it's really fascinating. But one of the things that, and it's long, it's like the audiobook is 27 hours or something like that. So it's a long book, uh, as you could expect for a book that tries to be all encompassing about such a big topic. Uh, but it's a really good book. Um, but it's also such a sad story. And I don't just mean sad because war is sad, because war is sad, of course. But so often throughout this war, both sides made horrible, horrible, terrible mistakes. Uh, you know, like assuming that they could just charge the enemy and with enough willpower, they would break through the front lines and, or uh, ignoring warning signs that the enemy was advancing or just whatever. There's just terrible, terrible, terrible mistakes. I'm sure that happens in all, all wars, but it's just terrible. How many, you know, you hear, you read about a battle, 80,000 people died because the two people in charge made stupid mistakes. And so that leads to my second pick, which is going to be any English translation of Sun Tzu's Art of War. If any of these people had read that book, World War One probably would have been a lot shorter. <laughs> <laughs> so those are my two picks. Uh, a World Undone uh, by G.J. Meyer and uh, Sun Tzu's Art of War. I've always been amazed at sort of like the human psychology of war. Like, how, how does this work? I'm going to convince thousands of people to just go run towards death, like that way, go that way. How does that happen? Drugs, mostly, and alcohol uh, was, was, the, was the weapon of choice for, for World War I, certainly World War II. Almost all wars the, after, after the brewing of beer was pretty much, it's, it's amazing, actually. So I'm a big, I'm a bit of a, I'm a history fan as well, big fan of British history. And there's, um, there's, a, there's a, an endless set of examples in modern war, Renaissance war, in antiquity, uh, even when the British were fighting the Romans, um, everything where we consistently messed up strategies because we were absolutely wasted while we were trying to conduct like 10,000 person um, formations and things. And we were just falling all over ourselves. And it's, it's, it's genuinely fascinating how, and in World War One, World War Two, how much amphetamines like played a role. It's basically just like, here, take this. You feel really good. And <laughs> run that way. <laughs> like ignore the bullets. Enjoy yourself. You know, it's, it's crazy how much that it sort of got people going. Um, so it's a bar fight at scale, is what you're telling oh, me? Yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Especially World War One. World War One was the, our first attempt at truly industrialized warfare. Like before then, it was the Napoleonic Wars, right? And that was just not even the same kind of, um, we weren't even close to that kind of scale, that kind of technology that was being employed. Um, and so the idea, like don't, you mentioned that the generals are like, if we just, we can just beat them with willpower. It's yeah. like, yeah, kind of. I think during the Napoleonic War, we started to realize that willpower was less useful than particularly well-organized troops and superior technology yeah. but it was the technology thing just hadn't quite landed there because guns and weapons and bombardments were still so temperamental whereas now yeah. first world war first world war of course that becomes they're, they're really reliable <laughs> they're really really efficient really reliable like all right well i'll go next um i'm gonna pick the third season of this dark materials it's on hulu and i normally don't like book to tv adaptations but i did really like this one it, I don't know. It was really good. It stayed pretty true to the series, I thought. And I had something else, too. Oh, I'm going to give my usual disclaimer. Don't watch any of it if you cry easily and you have stuff to do that day. Like, just don't do it. That's my pro tip. I guess I won't be watching that one then. <laughs> I cry very no. easily. His dark materials has me crying like a little girl. Like, it's just, it's not okay. And then my kids come and, like, troll me about it. <laughs> oh, no. Would you watch Mom, the Little Mermaid? Oh. No, no, I didn't. It's something else making me cry today. <laughs> it's horrible. 
<laughs> All right, Chris, your turn. Um, I'll try not to cry. Uh, so I, um, I would pick two. Uh, the first is a book uh, by General uh, Stanley McChrystal, which is called Team of Teams, um, which is a fantastic book all about um, where command and control should sit in any kind of scaled organization of people, um, how, how much sort of localized and independent decision-making teams should be able to make. Um, certainly when I was principal engineer in a, in a previous life and there was a few hundred people that I was partially responsible for helping to organize in some form. Um, it was a very, very good guidebook on backing off and letting people do their thing um, and, and and encouraging people to be able to do their thing rather than me being the sort of composer or orchestrator all the time, which was certainly the first instinct. Um, so really great book. Strongly, strongly recommend anyone reads. If anything, because General Stanley McChrystal was the guy that completely changed um, the nature of the, the war uh, in Iraq uh, against Al-Qaeda. So um, he was the one that turned it from American essentially losing people left, right, and center and constantly losing skirmishes and really poor intelligence. He was the one with some of the some of the ideas that he details in the book, turned that into really, really efficient intelligence supply lines um, and incredibly, incredibly collaborative teams that were spanning you know, tens of thousands of people with disparate missions, disparate goals, sometimes conflicting goals, and somehow made that into a sort of self-reconciling -rec uh, system. Absolutely remarkable. So a really, really great book. The second is uh, a book that I've just finished rereading, uh, Don Quixote, uh, which I think is the first modern novel ever ever written, um, but it was by uh, by Miguel de Cervantes, and it is generally just an affirmation of doing doing stupid stuff is sometimes good, so just do it anyway, um, and and live in your own um, live in your own fantasy for a while. Why not? Like be a bit delusional, good for you. Um, and that's the thing I take away from the book. I strongly recommend it, especially if you're feeling like you're embarking on some stuff and you've, you you need someone to just tell you to take the risk and give it a go. It's a long book, it's like a thousand pages, but it's a it, great, awesome. Like you finish it and you feel like you just have this whole new perspective, much more optimistic outlook. And ultimately that's what the book's about. So um, yeah, those are my picks. Right on. Very cool. I agree that Team of Teams is an excellent book. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. Well, cool. I believe we have a podcast. Awesome. I think so. I guess I, I I control the button, don't I? I have to hit stop now. Yeah. All right, here goes.